Take time to pause in your daily life. Just between doing two things, we've already paused what we're doing, to pause your thinking, just to notice where your mind is, it may be on the next thing you've got to do, and notice how it feels to pause your thinking. Hello and welcome to The Daily Helping with Dr. Richard Schuster. Food for the brain, knowledge from the experts, tools to win at life. I'm your host, Dr. Richard. Whoever you are, wherever you're from, and whatever you do, this is the show that is going to help you become the best version of yourself. Each episode, you will hear from some of the most amazing, talented, and successful people on the planet who followed their passions and strive to help others. Join our movement to get a million people each day to commit acts of kindness for others. Together, we're going to make the world a better place. Are you ready? Because it's time for your daily helping. Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Daily Helping Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Richard, and what an honor it is to share with each and every one of you today a truly exceptional human being who is so well-renowned. His name is Peter Russell. He's the author of Letting Go of Nothing and From Science to God. He has degrees in theoretical physics, psychology, and computer science at the University of Cambridge, even studied for a time with Stephen Hawking. We'll definitely want to ask him about that. But expertise and experience having studied meditation and Eastern philosophy, as well as research in the neurophysiology of meditation. He coined the term the global brain with his 1980s bestseller of the same name, sold over 100,000 copies worldwide. And he lives in Northern California. He's got power. We weren't sure we would. (laughs) Peter, welcome to The Daily Helping. It is great to have you here on the show. Thanks, Richard. Lovely to be with you. Looking forward to this. Oh, this is going to be great. I've I've had this one circled on my calendar for a while. And there's so many different things we could talk about. And you've got such a fascinating story. So let's wind back the, the clock. Let's jump in the Peter Russell time machine and tell us a bit about what put you on the path that you're on today. It's a complete surprise to me back then. I had no interest in, you know, consciousness, spirituality, that sort of stuff. I was, I was a budding mathematician. I was good at it at school. I won awards to Cambridge to study maths and theoretical physics. And that's where um, I met Stephen Hawking. He was in my college. He just finished his postgraduate work and his early work on black holes. So his illness was coming on, but he could still walk with a, with a stick and he could still talk with a bit of a sort of hiss. But... He, he was there. And the thing at Cambridge is you have what's called a, uh, a supervisor. And so undergraduate students are supervised by a graduate student. And so for a while, he was my supervisor, which meant he went over my studies with me, asked me questions, that sort of thing. You might call it a tutor or mentor. So I didn't actually study with him, but I, I studied under him, if you like. Yes. And then there came a time... I was fascinated by physics and mathematics. I still am. I still read a lot about it. But I got more and more fascinated by the whole question of consciousness and why are we conscious? I mean, according to physics, everything should happen. You know, we, we can understand how atoms work, how molecules connect, we, you know, go into why they build cells, how cells interact, how the brain works, all of that. 
But there's nothing in science which says that because of all this, we should have an experience. And here we are, I'm experiencing you, I'm experiencing the room around me, I'm having an experience. And so that led me to get more and more fascinated by consciousness and what is consciousness. And that's when I studied neuroscience for a while. And it was interesting, nobody there was interested in consciousness. I learned a lot about the brain and neurons and all that stuff. And I realized the people who really explored consciousness were the, the yogis, the monks, the spiritual adepts who actually went inside themselves. And I realized that's the way you study consciousness is to look at your own experience. And that drew me into meditation. I started thinking that's a way to look at my own mind, meditation. And that's how this journey really started. And at that stage, I still had no interest in religion. I got, you know, when I was about 13, my parents, you know, we went through the normal process of what's meant to be confirmation. But for me, it was deconfirmation. When I realized the Nicene Creed, you know, I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, I can chant the whole thing. I thought it was just a chant. It was, no, it's a creed. I was meant to sign off on this. It's like, what? And I just said no. And my parents said, fine. And so I completely rejected religion. But as I got more into meditation and during my time in India, my studies there, I realized there was something to religion, not to all the surface stuff, because they all look so different, have different beliefs. But deep, deep down, I realized there was something similar to them all. And what they were all saying was that we function with a limited potential, whether it's because we get caught up in materialism or a sense of self and ego, different things. And they're all in one way or another looking for ways to release people so that we could actually live richer, more loving, fuller lives. And that captivated me. And so one of the things that's been a theme of my life really is what is the core? What is that essence? And really this book is sort of, in a way, my encapsulation of that, you know, so far in my journey, because I think they all, in one way or another, talk about letting go as being important. And so that's really how I got to here with many <laughs> little side routes on the way. Well, it's interesting. And I know certainly there has been a paradigm shift with respect to how meditation is viewed in general. It used to be, and you alluded to this, that there was significant data. Everybody was all about the neurons and the axons and all of the, you know, the biological components of the brain but anything that was for the spiritual side either was kind of relegated to just a religious thing or viewed as, you know, not science. And, and as we've moved forward and now we're in 2021, we realize that those two things are a lot closer than we ever thought before. So, but you were kind of in, in the midst of all that during the time when nobody wanted to hear that, which is really interesting. Yes. In fact, um, I wanted to do a PhD in Cambridge on, on meditation, the neurophysiology of meditation. And the professor there, who was, you know, a real sort of, he was he was in his later years, but a real sort of diehard materialist psychologist, he said, no way could I do a PhD on meditation. It just was not a scientifically respectable subject. He said, if I really wanted to go out on a wing, he would allow me to do research on hypnosis. But that was it. Uh, but then, coincidentally, another university heard about me and said, hey, you can come here if you want. So I moved to another university and did my research. Yeah. Yes. And, and even then, I mean, a bit later, I mean, part of my career back in the 80s and early 90s, I was doing a lot of 
consulting work in corporations in terms of I was taking the ideas I was fascinated by and take, taking them into the corporate world. But back then, you know, I, it was, they, I didn't use the word meditation much. I talk about relaxation. And I was working for one major international corporation, teaching their directors. I was in their boardroom. And part of the agreement was I would never, ever mention to anybody that I was teaching meditation to their senior executives. You know, now you look at it, people like Google and a lot of the high tech companies, they're so proud to say that they're teaching meditation to people. So that's a sign of how much things have changed. You really have, and for the better in that respect. So you, you, you teased it, and we mentioned the title in the beginning, you know, letting go of nothing, which is so intriguing because when I hear that, I'm like, wait a minute, why nothing? Everybody's got something. What, what, is, what does that really mean, letting go of nothing? Yes, it's, you see, what we think we're letting go of, you know, say it's um, a relationship or some job or, or even something you're planning to do tomorrow, which you can't do because the weather's changed, you've got to let go of it. We think we're letting go of things or things we do, or even letting go of our thoughts, beliefs, you know, we say, I must let go of this idea, whatever it is we, we're letting go of we're not actually letting go of things. What we're letting go of actually is our attachment to them. And our attachment is the way we see things. And that's not something, that's not a thing you can actually experience. We can experience thoughts, we can say thoughts are things in the mind and feelings are things and you know, our, our money and job and all that, they're, they're things. But what we're letting go of is not a thing. So it's, a, I call it a no thing. And that's the, the nothing. So we're letting go of no thing. That's where the title comes from. But of course, it's much nicer to put it as letting go of nothing because it brings in the whole intrigue. So what we're, what we're letting go of is how we see the situation. And it's really about a change of mind. So we're not letting go of anything. We're just changing how we see things. So it's really a change of mind. And so what you know the book is about, a lot of it is about how, how, how can we change our mind about things how can we allow that to happen so, so that, that's where the title comes from so i am hearing this and it sounds a lot like some of the techniques involved in cognitive reframing that is you take a situation which has had a negative consequence on a person's life emotionally cognitively yeah. what have you and you look at it from a different point of view and it enables one to kind of let go is that very similar to what we're talking about here it's a similar sort of approach, except the way I approach it is not to not to involve the thinking mind in trying to come up with a different cognitive view, because then we can just sometimes get in another trap. It's, it's another thought system we can get engaged in. What I find is deep down inside, we have a lot of what I call inner knowing or wisdom, which actually knows the truth about how to see things. And so I, I take an approach of actually being quiet and just asking a very simple question, is there another way of seeing this? But just asking it without trying to come up with an answer and asking it in a completely open, sort of curious way, like, you know, who knows, could there possibly maybe be another way of seeing this? And, just, and not to look for an answer. And then what often happens is from inside me comes another way of seeing it, which is usually a much more compassionate, 
easier way of, of seeing what's going on. So it's similar, but the approach is to allow my own inner inner knowing to show me another way of seeing things rather than trying to come up with it intellectually. A huge distinction and very interesting, certainly. So I want to get back to this because this is massively exciting to me, but I want to take a step back. And when we talk about letting go, so you have all of this data on the neurophysiological impact of meditative practices and such. So if somebody is, is listening to this and they're able to start letting go of these things, first talk about why that's so important. And then secondly, share with us some of those neurophysiological impacts that happen when you let go. Right. Well, why it's so important is that when we hold on, whatever we're holding on to, the view we're holding on to is usually something that's limited and it stops us seeing, stops us seeing other things. But also I think it create it can create a lot of tension in ourselves, which again is is definitely not good for our for our well-being. And so this is why I think letting go is valuable. In fact, it actually makes life easier. We feel better. And probably we're not going to put ourselves in situations we would later regret. You know, if you're holding on to you're holding on to some grievance about somebody, something they did in the past. And some, if you're holding on to that, when you next meet them, that may come out in some snide comment or something. And they may react, although the grievance is about something that's, that's long gone. So, you know, at the time, there may well be a reason to be upset at somebody at the time. But we human beings seem to be especially good at holding on to that for a long time, years even, until we say, oh, I can't forgive someone for what they did, you know, way back then. It's like, I'm sorry for you, because the, <laughs> the only person you're upsetting is yourself mm -hmm. by holding on to the grievance. Mm -hmm. So we upset ourselves. We, we create unnecessary mental discomfort, discontent, and maybe just unnecessary behavior. So that's why I think letting go is seen to be so important in this. And what happens when we when we do let go, when you, you know, meditate, you mentioned meditation, I, I see, you know, a key element in meditation is actually letting go the sort of meditation I'm interested in, which is, you know, things like mindfulness, transcendental meditation, other meditations, which are basically allow the mind to relax you're allowing the mind to relax so it's a process of letting go of being caught up in a particular thought stream or other and what's come out through lots and lots of research on this over the years really probably about 50 years of research now on meditation that's gone on is that you find the brain moves into more closer to an alpha state, which is the more relaxed state. That's what people try to get when they do biofeedback. But it's a state when the mind is relaxed. So, so that's going on. There's also the shifts in areas of the brain which are functioning, like the prefrontal cortex tends to light up more, which is where we're, our sort of social connection is. That, that sort of thing is going on. And in the body, you find, because there's hormonal changes which start happening, because the brain, if the brain is saying, hey, there's not so I'm not worrying about so much because if the brain creates some image, something to worry about, it doesn't distinguish whether it's real or not. You know, if, if there's someone if there's someone actually attacking me, it's going to I'm going to respond in a certain way. I'm going to get ready to fight or run or whatever it is. If I then 
if I sit down and imagine someone's attacking me, the brain goes through the same process. In fact, it may not be as extreme. I don't get up and run out my chair, but the same process is happening. And so, and that's because the brain releases hormones. And what's been found is that during these relaxed states, during meditation, during letting go, the physiological response is the exact opposite to the stress response. So the stress response is winding us up, getting us ready to go. And in these states, it's the exact opposite. So the body is beginning to chill out, basically, and come to a more quiet state, which, you know, to me, must be good all around. There's, there's times when we need to be, you know, on guard. We need to have that tense. There's certainly times for that. But I think, sadly, a lot of us end up in a ready-to-act state with that sort of tension where there's no need. So I think that's one of the, the values is we're just like, telling the body, chill out, calm down for a moment, you know, it's no need. And I think the more we can do that in our life as a regular thing, the better. Hey guys, Dr. Richard here. For the past seven years, I've been privileged to bring you incredible guests who are changing the world and can help you become the best version of yourself. I'm really excited to share with you a new quiz that I created based on my clinical training that will curate for you a custom list of my top episodes and actionable strategies to help you wherever you are on your journey. All you need to do is go to drrichardschuster.com to take it, and it's 100% free. You'll be taking the next step on the journey to unlocking the power of you, and I can't wait to see where you'll go. No question. I, I love this. And I'm hearing it as I, as you're describing this, because <clears throat> there's a meditative component to the share. It also sounds like there's a forgiveness component. And I'm suspecting that it's a forgiveness of others, but forgiveness of yourself too. Right on. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's a whole subject we're going to. <laughs> but just briefly for now, I mean, we think of forgiveness, you know, this sort of conventional way of thinking of forgiveness is you did something wrong, but I'm not going to punish you this time. I'm going to let you off. I forgive you for what you did wrong and we'll forget about it. That's the conventional idea. The actual root meaning of the word in Greek that appears in the Bible is a thesis, which actually means to physically let go, like you're letting go of a rock or something. You're actually letting go. And so... I see forgiveness is actually letting go of the judgment or the grievance. So it's something we do in ourselves, really for ourselves. We're not, the other person may not know we forgive them. They may not even know we're judging them in the first place. But the forgiveness is we've been holding that grievance. We've been uptight about it. It's been going on, occupying our minds by, by letting go of that judgment or grievance, we're actually allowing ourselves to come back to a more balanced state. And so the second part of doing that is to begin to put yourself in the other person's shoes, you know, maybe they had a bad night, maybe something from the past has come up, maybe something from their childhood got triggered, who knows what was going on with the other person that led them to behave the way they did. And so by doing that by putting ourselves in their shoes we begin to release the story begin to let go of the story it's no longer so important it's like well maybe this was happening maybe they did that and we begin to become more compassionate but again this is something 
we do for ourselves to release the tension. And yes, we can we can apply this to ourselves. Forgiving ourselves is equally important. I mean, I know you know at times like you know, oh God, I really made a mistake there. You know, I, I cannot forgive myself for whatever it was I did. But the same thing, you know, okay. I believe we all do the best we can the whole time. But uh, the best we can may be limited by what's going on, how we're feeling. All these things can limit the best we can. And so just to see to myself, okay, you know, I may, you know, in hindsight, I could have done that better, but I did the best I can at the time. And so that to me really leads to a sort of forgiveness in myself. And again, the same thing happened. It's like, ah, okay. I can begin to relax. And so forgiveness is, I think, an essential thing in, in just helping us relax and come back to a, an easier mode of being. This is awesome, Peter, and I know everybody's enjoying this. I want to ask you a question because there's a couple of terms in your book that I wanted to highlight. I know we, we've talked about letting go, but there's also the terms letting in and letting be. Yes. Talk to us yeah. about those. Yes, that's something that over over the years of looking at letting go, I discovered is really the best way to let go. This is what I found in my all, all of this book is my own sort of journey. It's not about academic research or what other people have found. It's that my my own discoveries. When we think of letting go, again, we tend to think of it as getting rid of something. You know, I, I've got to let go of. Say, uh, say my judgment or grievance, say my grievance about something, I've got to let go of that. We think I've got to get, I've got to get rid of it. I've got to, and so what we often tend to do is push it to the back of our minds. I'm not going to think about that. I'm going to push it away. But I think we all know when we do that, it may not be effective on the surface, but these things that we push to the back of our minds, the edge of our awareness, they're still controlling us. And they can still erupt. So I suggest doing the exact opposite instead of trying to get rid of this or push it away from our awareness, is to actually, first of all, let it in. Because I think any discomfort, whether it's a physical discomfort or pain or emotional, is actually a call for attention. But because it's uncomfortable, we don't like it, we push it away. So my approach is, it's calling for attention here. So let's give it attention. And so with with any emotion, I see there's two aspects to it. There's the feeling in the body, that there's always something going on in the body. You know, we talked, you know, with a grievance, it might be, you know, you're feeling tense and, you know, maybe a bit of anger there, the body's tightening up. There's a feeling in the body. And it's interesting, we use the word feeling for an emotion as well. We say, you know, oh, I'm feeling upset. There's the feeling in the body. So, there's that. And then there's also what I call the story, the narrative, the thoughts that are going on. This person, blah, 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 did me wrong, whatever it was. I'm, you know, they are so and so, etc., etc. That's the story of what happened. So, first of all, is to let in the experience. And I always go for the body first, because the body, the body has a lot of wisdom to it. And so the first thing I suggest to people is if you're feeling something some emotion, you know, you just want to be free of it, then first of all, feel how it feels to be there. So if you've got a grievance, there's, there's going to be some tightness, some tension. So go to the body and notice, notice 
Notice any tightness that's connected with it, any, any tension in the muscles, notice that. And then notice what else is going on, maybe on a, on a subtler level, not so much physical tension, but sometimes, you know, I call it a tightness in your being. It's like I'm what we call like being uptight. It's like there's, there's a tightness in my being, something like that. And you begin to just be curious in that same way, you know, talking about just, you know, is there another way of seeing this? I, I use that same sort of approach. You know, could there be something else going on in my body I'm not aware of? Could there just possibly, and usually something else presents itself. So what I'm doing is I'm letting in the physical feeling of, of whatever it is. And then the second part is letting it be, not trying to change it, because it's there. But if we just let it be, then there's a process that happens. I call it sort of metabolism that happens. It's like it begins to soften and begins to be less important. And so we're in a way creating the right mental conditions to allow the release to begin to happen. Uh, an example I use in the book is you know, if you're holding onto a rock, small rock, you're holding it up in the air and you want to let go of it. The first thing you notice is you notice the grip. You notice your gripping, you feel the grip. And once you feel the grip, you can say, ah, this is how I relax it. You can feel the fingers, which fingers to release, etc. So by feeling the grip, then the relaxation can begin to happen. And it's the same thing with emotions. If we feel the grip they have in terms of how our body feels, then the relaxation can begin to happen. It creates an environment by which the letting go can begin to happen. And then the same thing with the story side, which you know we touched on briefly before, but looking at, okay, what am I telling myself here? What's the story that's going on? How true is it? There's always, there's probably always some truth to it. Whatever got you going, that person did behave in a stupid way, for example, whatever it is. And what else is happening? How, how is this story limiting me? How am I not seeing other things about the person as, you know, as we thought of mentioned about, you know, putting ourselves in the other person's shoes. So let it, letting in the story, just seeing what it is you're, you're telling yourself and, and just allowing that to be, not, not trying to change the story, allowing it to be, but then opening up to, you know, could there be another way of seeing this perhaps? And often something begins to come through. So I find by this process of letting in and letting be, we're creating the right mental conditions that allow the letting go to begin to happen. We don't do letting go. I mean, we're already doing the holding on. That's, uh, we're holding on, but that's where we're doing things. So it's really an undoing of the holding on, which is like creating the conditions by which that can begin to relax. Perfectly explained. I love that. So as one reads through this, Peter, there's a number of things, not only from the title, but there's some eyebrow raising assertions in your book, one of which is that there's no such thing as the ego. The ego doesn't exist. So what Talk to us about that. What do you mean by that? A lot of my headings are <laughs> deliberately provocative <laughs> to get you to ponder and, and ask these questions. So this, the emphasis is on thing. I'm saying there's no such thing as ego. And the ego I'm talking about here is not what, you know, psychologists call a healthy ego, which is your sense of self-worth that helps you navigate the world and form, you know, meaningful connections with people. The, the ego I'm talking about here is when people say, oh, that's my ego, or that person's got a, you know, a strong ego, or my, 
my ego got in the way my ego told me to do this whatever it was and we use the word ego as a noun as if there's something there called ego like there's some part of me almost like some entity there's a different self if you like there's there's an ego self when i look inside myself when i look inside my own consciousness i can't find it i don't find a separate part of me called ego which comes in uh, there's no separate entity called ego what i find is there are egocentric thoughts you know i can get very caught up in my you know what i think i need or whatever it is and yes yeah, self-centered thoughts and maybe feelings that come from it so there's that is definitely there but the point is it's not a thing it's a mode of thinking i get caught in so there's so what we call the ego is not a thing it's actually a thought system it's a, it's a way it's the way we're thinking about things it comes back to what we're saying at the beginning it's how we see things we're seeing things through the lens of what do i need what's good for me often at the expense of others so it's a way of thinking rather than a thing and what is important about that is lots of lots of traditions talk about we need to you know let go of ego conquer the ego get rid of the ego whatever it is they're seeing the ego as some enemy to be beaten in some way or another to be defeated if we see it as a mode of thinking we get caught in then rather than being something that after years of spiritual practice you eventually get rid of the ego it's not that at all it's something we can step out of at any time we notice it it'll come back but the practice is stepping out of it so when i notice i'm caught up in some egotistical thought that's going on i have the choice to just say okay i'm not going to follow you anymore i'm, I'm just going to leave you leave you behind i'm not going to follow you so i am interrupting the ego mode of thought it's what I, I in the book i refer to as ego mind it's the state of mind we get caught in and so by choosing not to follow that particular line of thinking i'm interrupting the ego mode which means being free of ego is something i can be practicing every day rather than hoping will happen after years of meditation or something but that's the point there's no such thing as ego but there definitely is egoic modes of thinking makes perfect sense and i can imagine as you're talking through all this peter that of course there's the impact on one's self one's functioning one's physiology one's emotional well-being but it stands to reason that this type of practice can also greatly improve one's relationships talk to us a bit about that yes 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 deep down i think we all want the same thing which is you know if you ask people what they want and why they want it and you keep on asking why do you want this deep down what it comes down to is we all want to we all want to be happy we want to be at ease we want to be loved we want to be respected nobody wants to be rejected or insulted or suffering have pain inflicted so deep deep down we all want the same thing and we go about it in, in very different in very different ways and that's where you know the ego mind comes in the ego mind is saying this is this is what i need to do to be happy and someone else's ego mind is saying this is this is what i need to do to be happy so we 
our ways of going about things are very different. And the ego is always on guard for any, any possible threat. When I say the ego, or I mean <laughs> ego mind, but it's just the way of thinking is so deeply ingrained. It's always on guard about possible threats and things. So what can often happen in any relationship is anyone, I mean, you, it's, it can happen right now. I mean, in my relationship with you, you say something that for some reason, my ego mind takes as some sort of threat or attack. And you, you didn't mean it at all, but that's the way I interpret it. And then what can happen then, well, it wouldn't happen now because I'm being very polite to you because we're on air, <laughs> etc. But in a real in a situation, I, I'm going to feel a little bit hurt. And so I might respond in some sort of attack back. You know, it may just be withholding something or body language, whatever it is, or or actually an attack. You, you know, what do you mean by that, you so-and-so? Now, you do feel attacked because I did deliberately attack you and you feel a bit put out and you come back. Well, you could say that, but... And we end up, Two people, both deep down, wanting to be loved, wanting to be appreciated, want to feel at ease, at peace, sort of digging into the other person, just digging in a bit, saying, you know, you're not loving me enough. So I'm going to just tweak this a little bit and upset you a little bit so that you will realize the error of your ways and love me better. And when two people do that, you're just spiraling into, you know, having a row or whatever it is that needs to be repaired or something. The way out of this is actually very simple. It's first of all, recognizing that we both want the same thing. And then just to be on guard against those attacking thoughts. And so when they come in, just say, uh -uh, no, I'm not going to go there. But also having the intention, the intention that whatever I say, However I respond, whatever I do, my overall intention is that you should feel good on it upon hearing it. You should, you should feel appreciated. You shouldn't feel rejected or upset. So my intention is, it's what I call the principle of kindness, is to, is to be kind to you, to take care of you. And, you know, there can well be times when, I, you know, I might need to give someone critical feedback, you know, like, what you're doing here isn't really working for me. But instead of just blurting it out, saying, I don't like what you're doing, you know, we could, a kinder way would be to say, you know, I really appreciate our relationship, whatever it is, and I want us to, I want it to grow. And I'm feeling a little, you know, concerned about saying this because, you know, I'm, I'm scared you might be upset, but, you know, you preface it that way. And then you can say, but, you know, what, I, what I'd like to talk about is this. When you do that, then you're in a way creating a conversational field, which is supportive. It's a loving field in which you could then say, you know, whatever it is you'd like to feed back. It's really the golden rule that's in every spiritual tradition in one way or another, which is basically treat others as you would like to be treated. And, and it's just putting that into action. But it comes from this recognition that deep down, deep down, we all want the same thing. So we're taking care of another person's inner well-being, if you like. I think, you know, we all we all know what it means to take care of another person's outer well-being. Oh, you know, you're sick, you know, can I can I go and get you something? Can I make you some soup or something? Whatever it is. We we you know we respond to taking care of someone's outer well-being, but we're not so conscious about 
how a person is feeling in themselves. So this is really taking care of a person's inner well-being. Awesome. So well said, Peter. I, I wish we had more time, but uh, we have to let go of our time together. <laughs> what, a, we... what a shame. <laughs> I, will let that, I will let that in and let it be. <laughs> yes, we will definitely let it be. But before we do, I always ask my guests this one question. That is, Peter, what is your biggest helping? That one most important piece of information you'd like somebody to walk away with after hearing our conversation today? I would say take time to pause in your daily life between doing two tasks, you know, between doing your emails and going and making a cup of coffee or something, just between doing two things, we've already paused what we're doing, to pause your thinking, just to notice where your mind is, it may be on the next thing you've got to do, just to pause for a few seconds, that's all, and notice how it feels to pause your thinking. And when we do, it's usually a sense of, ah, ease, relief, and we start noticing the present moment, oh, there's there's the sound of the wind in the trees I hadn't noticed, or the traffic noise I hadn't noticed. And so by just doing that, we come back to the present, because our thinking is always taking us into the past or future. So when we just pause, just for a few seconds, we're both coming back to being more in the present moment, and we're feeling better for it, we're feeling easier. And then the process over time gets rewarding. We notice we feel better, so we do it more, and it's something you can build up. But just it's just doing it for a few seconds as often as you can remember to think about it. Love it. It's so great. Peter, this has been a refreshing and provocative, the word you used a couple of times earlier, but I, I loved our discussion. Tell us where people can connect with you online, find out more about everything you're doing, including where they can grab your book. Yeah. You know, the best place for me is my website, which is peterrussell.com with two hours on Russell or you end up with some typo squatter, but Peter Russell. And also my YouTube channel is, I've got a lot of videos up on YouTube. So you can just, you can go there, just put in Peter Russell on YouTube and it'll come up with me pretty easily. And my book is on my website on the homepage and you where to go to get it, you know, wherever you normally get your books, online bookstores or your local bookstore is even better if you can support them if you have one. And on my website, there's oh, probably about 400 pages now of things I've written, videos as well, meditations, audios, exercises. That's really, that's really the starting point for me. It's just peterrussell.com. Perfect. And we'll have links to everything Peter Russell in the show notes at thedailyhelping.com. So if you're in the car, on the treadmill, we got you covered. Peter, this has been enlightening, and I'm grateful that you shared your time with us today. Thanks for coming on The Daily Helping. Thank you. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Absolutely. And I also want to thank each and every one of you who took time out of your day to listen to our conversation. If you like what you heard, go give us a follow on Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star review because this is what helps other people find the show. But most importantly, Go out there today and do something nice for somebody else, even if you don't know who they are, and post it in your social media feeds using the hashtag MyDailyHelping, because the happiest people are those that help others. 